the backstory behind the SWIFT attacks, and creating trustability in your IT systems. These stories and more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. The recent $81 million SWIFT-related theft from the Central Bank of Bangladesh has been reverberating around the globe. Let's take a step back and get a better understanding about what's happening with SWIFT, a worldwide messaging service used by banks to send and receive information about financial transactions. I'm joined by my ISMG colleagues, banking editor Tracy Kitten and data breach editor Matt Schwartz. Matt, what's the backstory with SWIFT? SWIFT initially engaged in victim blaming. They pointed to banks that had lost money and said, well, if your security practices were better, you wouldn't have lost money. There was some blowback from that. Some people said SWIFT could be a little better when it comes to the security guidance they're offering about how banks should integrate with their software and with the network that banks are using to exchange messages, which handle billions of dollars in money per day. Since then, SWIFT has taken some hits in the media, Regulators are asking banks what they're doing to protect themselves against these hacks that utilize SWIFT. Other experts have been calling for a stronger response from SWIFT. Is SWIFT going to act like a regulator? The CEO of SWIFT, initially he said that they weren't going to be a regulator. They weren't going to police banks. But now he has been discussing possibilities that include SWIFT working with regulators around the world to impose its security standards and also the possibility of SWIFT training auditors so that they can go in and review cybersecurity practices at all of the 11,000 institutions that use SWIFT. One potential follow-on from that, underperforming banks could be barred from using the SWIFT network until they get their act together. That would theoretically help with some of these attacks from a PR perspective, also make it not look like it's being raked over the coals here every time a bank gets hacked. What I find interesting here is what might the implications be in the U.S.? The Federal Reserve, for instance, is the agency that's overseeing the movement toward faster payments and right now is in the process of accepting proposals from the private sector, but has been very committed to the fact that it does not want to take on any kind of oversight or regulatory power here. Now that we see SWIFT moving into a more regulatory role, I wonder if we'll see the Fed Reserve do the same thing. Well, I don't know that SWIFT is necessarily going to do anything. It's making noise. But remember, SWIFT is run by banks, for banks. And if there's one thing that we don't see from banks ever, it's voluntary regulation. So I don't think anything's going to come of this, even though they're making a lot of noise about how some banks have got poor security practices. Tracy, are our concerns about SWIFT being hyped up? One thing that I have found interesting about the SWIFT-related heights, Eric, is that perhaps they've been a bit overblown. Aviva Leighton, an analyst at Gartner, points out quite rightly that if SWIFT had just put in just a few very basic controls, as well as some of the banks that are members of SWIFT, that these types of attacks or losses could have been easily avoided. When I read the reports and the reaction to those transactions from some of our politicians, I was pretty amazed at that strong reaction they had that our financial system could be in jeopardy, there's frailness in the worldwide financial system. The sky isn't falling. We have technology and measures that could be put in place to prevent what happened at SWIFT. Light might be right that the situation with SWIFT isn't as dire as some reports contend. Still, Tracy, don't they signal some serious challenges? These gaps in security, these gaps in authentication are a good indicator that the U.S. is not ready for faster payments because we still rely on outdated authentication methods. And once transactions are pushed through, there's no way to bring them back. The SWIFT heists basically offer lessons for the U.S. about what we need to do. 
we see a lot of banks around the world that had service level agreements with other banks that said using SWIFT authentication, meaning as long as you can get access to the SWIFT network, we will treat it as a valid message. That meant that any attacker who could hack into a bank's systems, inject fake messages, could then steal millions of dollars because that was all they needed to access. They didn't need any two-factor authentication, which seems like a no-brainer, but for whatever reason, banks hadn't bothered to put that in place. In the U.S., we have authentication guidance that has been pretty significant when it comes to the expectations that we have on businesses to ensure that we have dual-factor authentication and that we are double-checking all of those transactions. It's just interesting that the banks don't practice what they preach. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Trustability assures that security features on a computer system function as intended by the vendor and the enterprise's security policy. And those features cannot be changed to allow something that's forbidden. That's how it's supposed to work. It doesn't always. I recently caught up with Bob Bigman, the former CISO at the CIA. Bigman points out that one major new tool is designed to help promote trustability. In Windows 10, which will be the desktop of the future, for many it's the desktop of now, TPM, which is the Trusted Platform Module, will allow you to make policy decisions about the operating system and about the security of your environment and have a fairly high degree of assurance that it's working the way it's supposed to. In a presentation you made at the Information Security Media Group's Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit in Washington, D.C., You talked about some of the threat actors out there, such as nation states, who somehow get into our systems despite what we try to do. How do you defend against that? And you can't build hardware and software such as what's being developed for trustability yourself. So how do you assure that things will be trustable and they will keep the bad guys out? The key, basically, is to understand where they come from in the first place. And there's some confusion, (laughs) increasingly some confusion on this topic. They come from the outside of your network. But the hackers, the Russians and the Chinese, exploit your ability to go out into the Internet, access websites that you commonly go to, obviously often through encryption. And they wait, basically, with what they're called waterhole attacks or phishing attacks to get you to download their malware. What you need to do and think about first and foremost is to separate those two environments to provide as much isolation, either physically preferred or logically, to separate your internet access from your internal network access. And there's a number of ways you can do that, but that's the very first thing you have to keep mindful of and you have to make sure you keep those environments as separate as possible. What's next for organizations to prepare for trustability and and the the new kinds of uh, technology that's coming out. They should basically be looking at how their systems, both at the network layer, the operating systems and applications can exploit technology like TPM. All the vendors at the network layer, Cisco, Junos, at the operating system level, Microsoft, are developing themselves capabilities to exploit, for example, the TPM capability. I would today start building into my plans when I'm going to start introducing, rolling into that technology into my organization. That might make you have to increase your plans for your hardware refresh and your software refresh cycles, but I would make that an active part of my planning. I wouldn't waste another day in starting to do it. Is this going to be costly? No. Well, it depends. The hardware TPM capability will be there for free. If you have an enterprise license to the uh, Microsoft family and an enterprise license for Cisco, you're going to get that capability. Depending on what degree you've modified applications to use the operating system and what's referred to as the root of trust, it should be absolutely seamless. You shouldn't have any uh, cost or even need to rewrite applications. Okay. Well, thanks, Bob. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. 
When it comes to investing in cybersecurity, not all nations are equal. Take Australia, where the government has pledged to spend over the next four years $230 million Australian dollars, that's $167 million in American greenbacks, on a range of initiatives to bolster the country's cybersecurity stance. But two academics contend Australia still isn't spending enough compared with the U.S. and Britain, and remains dangerously unprepared for a major cyber emergency. ISMG's Australian editor, Jeremy Kirk, tells us more. Greg Austin and Jill Slay, who are professors at the Australian Centre for Cybersecurity, argue that the government's plan doesn't address the pace and scale of digital threats the country faces. They say the government's policy gaps could have negative impacts on the security and prosperity of its citizens. Part of the problem is spending. The U.S. expenditure is 400 times more than Australia's annualized spend on cybersecurity, with the U.K. at 10 times Australia's spend. Austin says that while Australia's defense forces are likely at a world-class standard, the country is weaker outside that narrow circle in areas such as critical infrastructure and cybercrime. One issue is simply estimating the scale of cybercrime. It's believed cybercrime costs Australia at least $1 billion a year, but the government says it could be as high as $17 billion. Like many countries, Australia simply doesn't know since much cybercrime goes underreported. Australia doesn't have a dedicated high-tech crime unit, which is one of the suggestions of the academics discussion paper. Austin says that's not unlike most countries in the world, but still lags behind leading ones. In Australia, I mean, we just don't... In- in the developed world, we don't have police forces who are capable, for the most part, of even talking about cybercrime, let alone investigating, prosecuting it, and seeing convictions. The discussion paper recommends that Australia set up a high-tech crime unit that could in part leverage off of Interpol's Singapore Centre. They say the unit should have research staff and be funded at $20 million a year for 10 years. They also recommend establishing a cyber defense league similar to what Estonia created after enduring cyber attacks in 2007. Austin says such a group would establish a reserve capability of experts who could coordinate a response in the event of a national cyber emergency. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk in Sydney. Finally, an unhackable operating system. As Jeremy Kirk reports, hackers have been unable to take control of a custom drone sitting in a Sydney laboratory. Researchers at Australia's National Security Agency Data61 say what makes the drone critical software ultra-secure is a relatively tiny operating system that has been optimized for maximum security benefit. The U.S. maintains a strict separation between critical and non-critical functions, so if a hacker compromises an application running on top of the operating system, access to other parts of the system are completely sealed off. Data61 Research Group leader Gerwin Klein says the drone simply has no attack surface and a hacker can't access or read or write to other parts of the system. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.